0: Pastor Doug, I'm an associate pastor here on Staff of the Rock, and I'm excited to be here uh, with you guys this morning. Um, For those of you who don't know me real well, um, you actually might be surprised to find out that I'm actually a very calm person. Um, Usually when you see me, I'm up here uh, giving an announcement or preaching, I I tend to get a little excited, I think, and so um, I'm actually an introvert, believe it or not, Um, so I prefer to spend most of my time um, not around a large group of people. So I picked a great profession to be in, a uh, great career choice. Um, I, I tend to get excited, and, and you would, you would might assume as my. 180 kids who are in the room today do, that the reason why I get excited is because I have one too many cups of coffee in the morning, or uh, one too many donuts, or I'm just a naturally energetic person. Oh, the reality is, I don't actually drink that much coffee, I definitely have too many donuts, Um, but in general, I just prefer to be alone on my couch, sitting there doing nothing. Um, The reason why I'm energetic is because when I get up here to do this, there's nothing more... Nothing better in the world to me Nothing more that I love Than to be with you The people that I love Sharing the word of God Doing ministry And sharing the word of God Excites me And so when I get up here I get really excited And so I hope that this morning As we are going to listen To the word of God And it's God's words That's coming out of my mouth uh, Through his word That you would be excited with me So are you guys excited? I hope so Let's get, uh, let's get to it. I want to ask you guys a, a quick few questions, and I want you to raise your hands when we're done with this and just do a little poll. How many of you have wondered any one of these questions? I'm just going to read off some questions, and I want to know if any of you have wondered any of these questions at all. If we have the New Testament, why do we need to read the Old Testament? If Jesus came to fulfill the law, then does the Old Testament law apply anymore? If the laws given in the Old Testament were given specifically to the nation of Israel, then do we have to follow the laws since we're not the nation of Israel? Which Old Testament laws do we have to keep and which ones are now irrelevant, if any of them? What is the purpose of the Old Testament law as Christians? Anybody wondered any of those questions? Raise your hand for me. Anybody wondered any of those questions? That's great. We're not going to answer any one of those questions this morning. Um, seriously, I've asked uh, all of those questions for myself, and the, and the reason why those questions are common and that people ask those questions is because the intersection between the New Testament and the Old Testament can be a little tricky. The intersection between the Old Testament and New Testament can be a little tricky. In particular, that which has to do with the law and how we as Christians in the New Testament time are to obey those laws, or are we supposed to. That, that intersection can be a little tricky. So, this morning, while we're not going to cover any of those other questions in detail, or at all, we are going to focus on one particular question that's in our text this morning. And Paul gives us that question specifically in this text. And the question is, why then the law? What is the purpose of the law? Why then the law? So, if you would, turn in your Bibles to to Galatians uh, chapter 3. We're going to be going through verses 19 through 29, but this morning, for the sake of context, we're going to start in verse 15, reading. So Galatians 3:15 through 29. Let me read this. <clears throat> to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that by the promise by faith in Jesus Christ we might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under your guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We are excited this morning to dive into your word and to answer this question, Lord, that uh, can be tricky. Why have you given us a law? I pray that you would make the answer to that question clear this morning, that we would understand from your word. Why you gave us the law and how it applies to us now, Lord, so that we can understand how we are to live and glorify you with our lives. We thank you for this time. I ask that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dive specifically into the passage, I feel obligated to give you guys some context. We really got to focus on the context in this particular passage so that we can understand what Paul is doing. It is clear from the letter of Galatians itself that this letter is written to Gentile Christians. We're talking about non-Jewish Christians. They're part of this community in Galatia. These Gentile Christians are Paul's primary audience to who he's communicating with in this book. The reason why he's addressing them is because since the last time Paul visited the churches of Galatia, he has heard that there is a group of Jewish Christians who have come into the church and are preaching a different gospel. This group is commonly referred to as the Judaizers. They are contradicting Paul's gospel and are confusing the recent Gentile converts. The Judaizers are confusing them by persuading these Gentile Christians to obey the stipulations of the Mosaic law, especially that of circumcision. Let me say that again. The Judaizers are persuading and confusing these Gentile believers by trying to convince them that they are to obey the stipulations of the Mosaic law, especially that of circumcision as Gentiles. So what specifically are the Judaizers contradicting in Paul's message? Paul's specific gospel message. What is Paul's gospel message that he has preached to the Gentiles at the Church of Galatia that is now being contradicted? Without going too deep into this, I want you to think about the letters that were written by Paul to the churches. Almost every single letter that was written to the churches that Paul wrote, wrote these letters to, were churches that Paul himself started. So when Paul would start these churches, no doubt he would enter into these areas and he would be preaching the full presentation of the gospel in the way that he would be giving it. The letters came afterwards. So we only have snippets things that he's correcting about his original message, but we don't have that original proclamation, that first initiating presentation of the gospel by Paul contained in the letters because they came after. It's assumed that Paul gave that presentation, but we don't have it contained in the majority of his letters. So how can we know, how can we know what Paul's presentation of the gospel actually was? How can we know that? Well, don't worry, in... Uh, Acts, we have quite a few sermons from Paul. We hear quite a bit from Paul, and we could piece together from his accounts of his letters what his message primarily was. And this is what we get in Acts and in various places in the New Testament. Paul had two big components to his gospel presentation. His first component was that he always taught that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. That Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. He covers how Jesus alone is the Jewish Messiah. That through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he redeemed his people. But the second point is always equally as clear. That salvation through Jesus has not just come for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. The thing that makes Paul's presentation of the gospel unique from the other apostles at the time that made him stand out was that he taught that Jesus was not only the Jewish Messiah but he was the Messiah not only for the Jews. He was the Messiah for the Jews, but not only for the Jews, also for the Gentiles. In fact, Paul's call into ministry, his mission that was given to him by God, authenticates that this was a particular thing for Paul, that he would be teaching the gospel to the Gentiles. We see in Acts chapter 9, right after Paul's conversion, that God sends this disciple named Ananias to go to Paul. Ananias is uh, scared to go see Paul because Paul is persecuting the church. So God gives him this encouragement in Acts 9. He says, go, he's talking to Paul, or to Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Turn back just one, one more, not back, forward, one more book to Ephesians. The next book, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you can't ever remember this, I tell this to my 180 kids all the time, God eats popcorn. That's how I remember it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. God eats popcorn. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to you for me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now we're going to skip down to verse 6. It says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which he was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul's, Paul was called as a, as someone who would reach specifically this group of Gentiles. His mission and his gospel focused on the reality that Jesus did not just come for the Jews but also for the Gentiles and he specifically was called to them to preach that gospel to make known the mystery of Christ which is that salvation is now available to the Gentiles if that's not enough for you to understand what Paul's message was his presentation of the gospel was you need look no farther than the book of Romans the book of Romans is the only letter written by Paul not written to a church that he himself started and so just as Paul would go around to all these churches and give this presentation when he first got into the churches, since he did not start this church in Romans, he sent probably what he would have, written, what he would have said to the churches when he started in the book of Romans, which is why the book of Romans is so deep. So in the book of Romans, you have everything containing uh, information about the law, about the Old Testament, and about how Christ interweaves with all of it. We have application of how the gospel makes sense in lives. All of it is contained, and it's probably very similar to what Paul would preach to the churches when he first would go to a church. And specifically, in Romans 4, we have this detailed look at how it's not the law that makes makes people righteous, it's faith in Christ that does. The whole point of Romans 4 is about how Abraham was justified by faith in Jesus apart from the works of the law. And so we too are justified by faith in Jesus apart from the works of the law. So you can assume that if Paul's giving this in Romans, and this is very similar to what he gave to churches when he first started them, that the Galatians would have known, understood, and accepted this truth. That salvation comes apart from the law and through faith in Jesus. And yet... There are these Judaizers who are coming into the church in Galatia who probably have this thought about Paul. They're probably thinking, Paul, your theology so fuses Abraham and Christ that you squeeze out Moses and the law altogether. How dare you? They're probably thinking that Paul leaves no room for the law in his gospel. And they would likely accuse him of the same thing that the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts 22 said, Paul, this man is teaching everyone everywhere against the law, but that's not what Paul is doing. And so, in our passage today, Paul makes his defense for the law, just like the Jews in Jerusalem and these, these Judaizers have misrepresented his position on the law. Paul's position on the law, Paul is far from declaring the law is unnecessary or irrelevant. say that again. He is not saying that the law is unnecessary or irrelevant. Instead, he is quite clear that the law has an essential part to play in the purpose of God. An essential part to play in the purpose of God. And that's what we get to look at today. So, Paul's very first point in talking about the law and clarifying what the purpose of the law is, is to say that the law is inferior to the promise. The law is inferior to the promise. Paul is going to begin his discussion on the law not by saying that the law is irrelevant, not by saying that the law has no purpose, but by saying that in comparison to the promise, the law is inferior. Just so we're clear, uh, when Paul is referring to the promise, uh, what he's referring to is the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. The promise given to Abraham consisted of three primary things. It's the... The seed, the land, and the blessing. So let me read from Genesis 12, and you can get these pieces here. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, Go to your country, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's three components, like I said, to this idea of the promise that God has given to Abraham. It's the seed. It's this idea that Abraham, God had given to Abraham this promise that his seed, his offspring, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that they would become a great nation. That's the first aspect of the promise. The second aspect is this: the land. God would give his people the land of Canaan and that they would dwell in that land eternally. It would be their possession eternally. And the third component is that there's a blessing attached to the promise. God promised to bless Abraham and bless his offspring so that through Abraham and through his offspring, they would be a blessing to all the nations. So when Paul is stating that the promise made to Abraham and his offspring is superior to the law given to Moses, that's the promise that he's referring to. And he says that the the law is inferior to the promise for two primary reasons. The first one is this. The law comes after the promise. Look at verse uh, 15 through 17 here. First reason why Paul gives for the law is inferior to the promise is that the law comes after the promise. He says this in verse 15: To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say "and to offspring," referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul is simply stating that the law came after the promise had been made to Abraham. And if the Mosaic law came after, centuries after the promise to Abraham, then Abraham could not have been obedient to the law. And since Abraham was considered righteous, he must have been considered righteous for a different reason other than keeping the commandments of the law. Therefore, the inheritance to the promise of Abraham cannot come through the law. That's his whole point. We're, all ta- we're talking here about how do we become partakers of this inheritance given to Abraham. He says the inheritance cannot Come through the law. That's exactly what he says in verse eighteen. He says this in verse eighteen. For the inherit for if the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes through the promise. So the law is inferior to the promise because the law comes after the promise. It's his first point. And his second point is is directly follows this. He says the law comes through an intermediary. That's why it's inferior. Look at verse 18. He says For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place, the law, through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What is Paul saying here? Paul can be kind of confusing sometimes. Notice in verse 18 that God is the one that directly gives the promise to Abraham. But in verse 19, it clearly states that the law was given through angels to an intermediary, indirectly. So what is Paul saying? Okay, Think of it this way. The Ten Commandments, in particular, were given to Moses, who acted as an intermediary between God and his people. The law was given to his people was given to God's people, but Moses acted as an intermediary between God and his people, and that's how the law was received. The rest of the law, found in Leviticus and the rest of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Jewish tradition would state that it was given through angels to Moses, who acted as an intermediary between God and his people. And so all Paul is saying right away in this passage, he just wants to make this very clear. He is saying that there's a direct contrast between the direct communication of the promise and versus the indirect communication of the law through the intermediary of Moses. That's what's being said. So Paul is trying to draw our attention to the inferiority of the law, not only because it became long after the promise, but because the promise is completely superior because it was communicated directly to Abraham without the use of an intermediary. So Paul's first point, and this is what the rest of this builds off of, Paul's first point is clear. The law, while it's not irrelevant is inferior to the promise. So the natural question that comes out of this, if the law is inferior to the promise, what's the point of the law? And that's Paul's next point. He says, his second point is about how the the law's effect on the promise. This is where Paul clearly outlines the purpose of the law is. He argues that the law is not useless but is useful in fulfilling a particular purpose in God's plan. What is the purpose? He spikes our interest with this massive, massive question. Why then the law? If the law is inferior, why then the law? I'm very grateful for Paul because he immediately gives us an answer. Look at verse 19. We don't have to wait long for this. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law was given first and foremost to reveal our sin. There's a fundamental misunderstanding that the Jews had of the purpose of the law. The Jews of Jesus' day and also these Judaizers in Galatia believed that observance to the law, strict adherence to the law, was the thing that made you Abraham's children. But the function of the law was never to bestow salvation, to give salvation. It was to convince men of their need of it. That's the purpose of the law. Think of it this way. It's been God's de- desire from the beginning that he would be in a relationship with people. Ever since the fall, from the first sin of man, that relationship has been broken. So what God has done is he's instituted in his law information for us to understand why we are separated, to show us our sin, but also to give us the means in which we can pursue holiness and righteousness according to the law so that we can get close to him. But what we find out through the law is that we can't ever keep it perfectly. So what God does additionally in the law is he gives us this right of sacrifice that temporarily covers our sin that's been shown to us so that we can approach him. The requirements of the law were never intended for us to be clean. Never intended for us to become clean. Instead, the law was given as a way for us to understand our filth and then rely upon God to provide the sacrifice in order to make us clean. Completely different. So the law was given first and foremost not to cover our sin. wasn't the purpose of the law, but to reveal it to us. So, to make this really clear, let's turn to Romans 7. Flip over to Romans 7, starting in verse 7. And we'll see how Paul clarifies this even more. In Romans 7, he says this, What then shall we say? Is the law sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Paul is saying that if it had not been for the law, he would not have known sin. He says something very, very similar to this in our passage today in Galatians verse 21, 321. He says, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that it could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law was never intended to to impart life. It was never intended to give life. It was meant, never meant to save. Uh, To make this abundantly clear, listen to this quote, this great quote from a guy named Phil Williams. He says, The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. Say it again. The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, Not the broom that sweeps it clean. So what Paul is saying is the law is inferior to the promise. So why then the law? Well, the law is there to reveal to us our sin. To show us our sin. Paul gives us another reason for why we have the law. He says the law was given to imprison us. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise made by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe now before faith came we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed not only does the law declare us guilty before God on the basis of our sin thus placing us under a curse but it also locks us up in prison preventing our escape every single person in this room has broken some law of some kind, the law of the land, right? Whether that be, hopefully it's just small things, right? Like uh, accidentally running a red light, going a few miles an hour over the speed limit, calling or texting while driving. We've all broken the law to some degree, and we're not too concerned about breaking those minor laws, right? Because the consequence to breaking those laws is just a minor slap on the wrist and fine, right? Hopefully less of us have broken big laws, Because when you break a big law, you go to prison. We're not committing grand theft auto in here in homicide because we know that what's going to happen is you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life if you do something like that, if you commit a big law. Now just imagine for one second if every single law, if breaking even the smallest law meant that you would face time in prison, whether that be a few years or maybe a lifetime in prison. Imagine if every single law that was out there meant that you would be in prison. Would you be a little bit more careful about obeying those laws? You probably would. And you would try to keep them as best as possible. You would you would make sure you'd watch your driving a little bit better. You'd be checking your bags at the grocery store, making sure your kids didn't throw anything in at the end that wasn't paid for, right? Because you not want to steal. You would want to make sure that nothing's flying out of your windows when you're driving because you don't want to litter. But no matter how hard you tried, eventually you would go one mile an hour of speed limit. Eventually something would fly out of the back of your car and you would be guilty of breaking that law and sentenced to a life in prison to some degree that's how the law of God functions if you break even one part of the law you are put in prison for a lifetime the law was never intended never intended for us to keep perfectly it was always intended for us to to show to us our inability to get to God our complete inability that we will break something sooner or later and we are going to be stuck and imprisoned because of breaking that law the law was meant to reveal our sin and also to imprison us. One commentator said it this way. I think this is very clever. He said, the Jews of the day had thought that the law as a fence, a protective barrier to cordon off the people of Israel from the sinfulness of the surrounding nations, to protect them. Paul takes this idea as the law as a fence and radicalized it by turning it into a barbed wire prison wall. The law's purpose was not to make the unjustified sinner pure and holy, but rather to condemn, to enclose, and to punish. So the law was given to us to reveal our sin and to imprison us. This is a fun sermon so far, right? Last point that Paul gives for the reason of the law. The law was given as our guardian as our guardian. Look at verse 24. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified through faith. This is actually a little bit different of a point from the last one. He's not saying that this stands as a prison guard, one that's keeping us in prison. This is a, a different point. The Greek term here is very precise. It's referring to a specific role in the Greco-Roman ro- world, and that is this role of this family slave that served as a guardian, disciplinarian, and, and teacher of some kind for children until they reached maturity. Okay? Paul's point here isn't isn't to highlight that the... the um, the law taught us Christ or the law uh, brought us to Christ it was that the the law was a placeholder until Christ Paul is highlighting the temporary nature of the law and anticipation of Christ that's what he's highlighting here as a guardian the law functions as our guardian until God's plan reaches maturity in the coming of Christ so in a sense he's saying that the law is not an end all it functions as a placeholder for something better. The Mosaic Covenant was never intended to be the ultimate covenant. It was to be replaced by the New Covenant. So why then the law? It was given to reveal our sin, to imprison us, and as our guardian. But Paul doesn't in there. It's clear that the law was inferior to the promise given to Abraham. And that the law was never intended to save us. So, if the law cannot save us, what can? If we cannot obtain it, the inheritance to the promise through obedience to the law, what can we do? Paul goes on to his next point and he gives us the answer to that question through Christ. Christ is the recipient of the promise. The inheritance to the promise was never to come through obedience to the law. It was always to come through the offspring, through Jesus. And so Paul is going to give us a few points here that are intermixed in these verses. Listen to these. He says, The law was given until the offspring of the promise comes. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made The law was given so that the promise might be given to those who believe So that the promise might be given to those who believe look at verse 22 It says but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin So that the promise by faith in jesus might be given to those who believe And his next point the law was given until the new way of faith could be revealed until the new faith, way of faith could be revealed. Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming of faith would be revealed. The law was never intended to make us heirs of Abraham, the offspring was. We were given the law until the offspring should come, until the one to whom the promise had been made was revealed. We are given the law to keep us as prisoners so that we would be ready for the promise to come and be applied to us through Jesus. We are given the law as a placeholder, as an insufficient way of reaching God until the new way was revealed. And that new way is through faith. We are to place our faith in Jesus Christ as the rightful heir and recipient of that promise obedience to the law assumes that you are the one doing the work and making yourself right before God. But faith in Christ assumes that He is the one. He is the one that makes you right before God. So while obedience to the law makes us dead in our sins, under a curse, aware of our trespasses, helplessly imprisoned with no way to God, look at what faith in Jesus can do. We become heirs of According to the promise through Jesus. Heirs according to the promise. Paul says that through faith in Christ we are justified. Through faith in Christ we are justified. Look at verse 24. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He says that through faith in Christ we are sons of God. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith in Christ we are one in Christ. Verse 27 and verse 28. For as many of you as you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female. You are all one in Christ. Through faith in Christ we are finally Abraham's offspring. Verse 29 says... And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he's saying, because of Christ, and through faith, we are justified through our faith in Jesus. We have been justified, declared righteous and just, not due to our obedience from the law, but through placing our faith in Christ, who by His work was able to completely satisfy God because he was without sin. And through Jesus, we are brought into Abraham's family as heirs. But we're not only brought into Abraham's family, we're brought into God's family. We are declared children of God through our faith in Christ. And we are no longer separated, identified as Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. We literally are Christ. The most identifying marker for us as Christians is that we are His. We are of Him. We are in Him. We are Christ. We are now one together with Him. And we are heirs according to the promise, not according to the law. All through Christ, through faith in Christ. So I'm just going to do a quick summary so we understand what's being said here. The law is inferior to the promise. We've established the effects of the law on the promise. What was the purpose of the law? We've seen that Jesus is the true and right recipient of the promise. And I've seen that through faith, we are heirs according to that promise. Now, the worst possible thing that I could do right now would be to walk, let you guys walk away for me to walk away from this passage from this text without doing some proper introspection in our own lives it might be very easy to see how the Galatians could be seen as foolish though they, they knew this, they understood this, they got this, they, they started trusting back in their own works instead of resting in the faith of, in Jesus Christ and so now it falls on us to ask that same question rock community church have you turned away from the grace of God that you receive by faith in Jesus to turn to your own ways for your growth and maturity as a church and as as individuals are we guilty of the same tendency to stop trusting in Jesus and begin again trusting in ourselves are we too like the Galatians foolish who being saved through faith are now being perfected by works? If you are trusting in your works, your obedience to a standard as the means by which you are made right before God, stop and rest in Jesus. If you believe your good deeds make you right before God, if you believe that your service makes you right before God, if you believe that your adherence to a moral code makes you right before God, if you believe that your religious rituals make you right before God, then you have completely missed the heart of the gospel. The only thing that can make you right before God is to put your faith in the one who was just and right before God. To rest in Jesus. Trust in Him To make you right. And stop trying to earn your way into right standing before God. It can't be done. And then let your works flow. Your good deeds flow. Your obedience flow. Out of a place of gratitude. Out of a grateful heart that is... Confident that you are justified before God, you are heirs according to the promise, you are one in Christ, you are children of God through faith in the finished work, not of yourself, not through obedience to the law, but through Jesus Christ and Him alone. I wrote a little poem uh, to help make this a little more clear. It might be a little silly, but I think it works. Help us make this more sense of what we're being what's being said here. The law was given because we are marred. Unable to enter into the presence of God, we are barred. The law stands watch as our guard. And even if we work hard, we will never rise from the graveyard. But one came who was scarred. He took upon the curse of the law, playing our card. He thought not of himself, but only gave us regard. By his works alone, he has balanced the scorecard, that we may be children of God and heirs through faith in him, our unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and glorious reward. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are heirs according to the promise not through our obedience to the works of the law not through anything of our own effort our own doing but only through believing and trusting and putting our place and faith in you Jesus the one who is right before God the one that bore our sins took upon our sorrows so that we could enter into the presence of God through faith in you we are so grateful Lord that we can look upon you as the one who is pierced and know that salvation is only in you thank you for washing us clean, not because of our own works, but because of what you've done for us. And may we glorify you more this week because of it. In Jesus' name.